ask anyone who has lost a significant amount of weight, and they'll almost certainly tell you, getting fit is hard work, but staying fit is even harder. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah applies this principle to your Christian walk, how just a little compromise can set back years of progress. From his series on spiritual renewal, here's David to introduce today's message, Doing Away with Compromise. And thank you for joining us today. What a very um, important topic for us. We're going to see that the Jewish people who gathered back in Israel ended up violating four critical principles of their walk with God. It didn't happen overnight. It happened a little at a time. Whenever we give up a little ground to the enemy, he puts his foot on that ground and then gathers himself up to take the rest of the property himself. And it is such an interesting thing to see. I remember hearing a noted Bible teacher talking about marriage, saying that marriages don't end because of a blowout, but because of a slow leak. And that's the way it happens to us in our Christian walk. We don't just walk in one day and say, that's it, I'm not going to follow God anymore. But little by little, we allow things to enter our lives that are counterproductive to our Christian walk. And one by one, we give up things that we committed ourselves to. And pretty soon we look back and our past is strewn with uh, compromise. We're going to learn some things today from Nehemiah 13. Grab hold of your Bible. If you have your study guide, I hope you will follow along. Uh, And before we get into this lesson, um, just keep talking about this very special manual that we have from O.S. Hawkins, this 210-page beautiful prayer code book in the code series that he is the author of. This book will help you sort out some of the frustrations you have in your prayer life. Uh, The subtitle of the book is 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. And when you open it up to the index, you see a prayer for the new beginning, true confessions, prayer and revival, uh, how to ask, the prayer of Jabez, the prayer that gets results, praying through the tabernacle, all of these. There are 40 of them, 210 pages, and these chapters are not long, and they're not complicated, but they're powerful. And if you read them, You cannot help but be changed in the way you address prayer in your life. I want you to have this. I hope you will allow us the privilege to send it to you. When you send your gift to Turning Point during the month of January, ask for your copy of the prayer code, and we'll send it to you right away. Okay, here's part one of Doing Away with Compromise. As we come to the 13th chapter... There is a little difference in what is happening. Nehemiah has finished the project of the walls. Chapter 12, he has dedicated the wall, and they have had a time of rejoicing. And then, if we put together Nehemiah 7 and verse 2 with the middle part of the 13th chapter of this book, we discover that Nehemiah leaves, and he is absent from Jerusalem for a period of about 12 years. This is both a challenging chapter and a rather discouraging one because within 12 years, many of the reforms that had taken place under his leadership had fallen by the wayside. When he comes back, he discovers that the people have forgotten many of the things that they committed themselves to do. One of the ways that we can see the difference and we can see the erosion of their commitment is to remember that back in chapter 10, they had all signed a covenant that they were going to do certain things from now on and that they would never cease to do those things. But just 12 years later, 
the things they committed themselves to do, they have stopped doing. There are four things, basically, that they violated in regard to their covenant. First of all, they forgot their vows of separation. Notice in verse 1, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the congregation of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing, so it was when they heard the law that they had separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now watch this. This takes us back before that time and explains what had happened. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles of tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings of the priests. But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Now let me tell you what happened. Nehemiah went away, and while he was gone, the people that he had entrusted to guard and care for the ministry were not vigilant, and they allowed an awful thing to happen. The Bible says that Tobiah, who was on the outside and had been one of the three major enemies. Remember back in the earlier part of the book, there were three enemies that came after Nehemiah and tried to destroy him. Tobiah was one of those. So the name Tobiah is not new in this narrative. We've read it before. He was one of Nehemiah's arch enemies. And he, along with Sanballat and several others, back in the earlier part of the book, had consistently tried to stop building the wall back 12 years earlier when the wall project had been completed. Now, During that time, Tobiah had tried to infiltrate the work of God through conspiracy. He had actually militarily attacked the children of Israel. And in every instance, Nehemiah, under the direction of God, had been able to ward off the intrusion of this wicked man. He had even been involved in a diabolical scheme to try to kill Nehemiah, perhaps even to assassinate him. If you go back and read it, you'll find Tobiah doing evil things in the earlier part of the book. When these efforts had failed and Tobiah could not infiltrate the plan of God, he did everything else he could do to discredit Nehemiah, including writing numerous letters to those in Jerusalem who were sympathetic to his cause as well as to Nehemiah personally. And you can find those letters back in the sixth chapter, verses 17 through 19. Now, when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, you can imagine the shock when he got back and found that Eliashib, who was the high priest in Jerusalem, had prepared a special guest room for Tobiah in the temple in Jerusalem. Here was this man who had done everything he could to undercut the work of God, and when Nehemiah came back after being gone for 12 years, he goes into the temple and he says, who's staying in that room? And they say, well, that's where Tobiah lives. That's where who lives? Tobiah had finally accomplished in a fifth column activity, what he could never do in a frontal way. He had infiltrated the people of God, and we find out as we study carefully that Eliashib, the priest, had a marriage alliance with Tobiah. They were related through intermarriage. Hold that in your mind because that's a key thought. 
And Tobiah had come to Elisha, and they'd made some sort of an alliance, and they moved all the furniture and stuff out of a storeroom in the temple and moved Tobiah in, and he had a little private apartment in the house of God. Now, I'll tell you something. There is not anything more out of place than a heretic and a critic and a person who's out to destroy the Word of God. There is no more out-of-perspective thing you can imagine than for somebody like that to have an apartment in God's house. So Nehemiah got back, and he saw this, he said, well, let's sit down and discuss how we might deal with this present problem. No, I want to read to you what he did. And I came to Jerusalem, verse 7, and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room, and I commanded them to cleanse the room. And I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Nehemiah has not lost his courage to deal with problems. He's been away for a while, but he's still the same old Nehemiah. When he comes back and finds out that Tobiah has moved into the temple and he's now acting like he belongs to God, and he's fraternizing with Elijah the high priest, he comes back. It doesn't say he had a council with anybody. He didn't call a meeting. He didn't do anything. He walked up to the room where Tobiah was, and I can see it. He started pitching furniture as fast as he could. Out the door it flew. If you'd have been walking by there, you'd have wondered, what in the world is going on in the temple today? And finally, he got the room emptied of all of Tobiah's furniture. Where Tobiah was, we don't know. He has not appeared on the scene. Maybe he walked by and saw his bed coming out the door and kept on walking. I don't know. But when he gets it all cleansed and all out, I love what it says. He said, listen, there's still a bad smell in here. Let's fumigate the room. Well, this was a different kind of aroma. This was the aroma of spiritual wickedness. And they had taken a room that had been dedicated to the use of Jehovah God, and they had used it for the purpose of discrediting God's man. And when Nehemiah came back, he said, if we're going to use this room again for temple purposes, we've got to cleanse it. We've got to sanctify it unto God. You know, it's not hard for us to see how that can happen if we are not vigilant. It is a reminder to me that no matter how frontal our defense may be against the enemy, he never, ever gives up, does he? If you go back and read the earlier part of the book, you will discover how tenacious Tobiah was until Nehemiah finally dealt with him. And then it looks as if Nehemiah's won the war and Tobiah's gone. But 12 years later, he's back doing it again. And what he couldn't do outwardly, he managed to do inwardly until Nehemiah comes back and this guy is living in the temple. Because, you see, they had forgotten their vows of separation. Tobiah the Ammonite was a part of a group of people that God had commanded the people of Israel not to have any association with because the Moabites and the Ammonites had refused to give help to Israel when she was coming out of Egypt. And because of that, there was a curse placed upon them. And God said, you may not intermarry with them. You may not have any fellowship with them. But here is a high priest, one of the leaders in spiritual Israel, who has made an alliance with the enemy of God. They forgot their vows of separation. But secondly, they had forgotten their vows of support. Now, there's an interesting relationship beginning at verse 10 that helps us understand something about the first nine verses. How is it, folks, that there was room in the temple for Tobiah to move in and set up his residence? Go back with me and let's find out what was in the room where he lived. Verse 5. 
They prepared for him a large room which previously had stored the grain offerings and the frankincense and the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. What in the world happened to all the stuff that was in that room before Tobiah moved in? I'm glad you asked because the answer is right here. Verse 10, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. And all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shemelmiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites Padiah. And next to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Now you get the impression with Nehemiah's prayer that he is getting a little heat right now. I mean, he's come back after being gone for 12 years. He's kicked out a resident in the temple. Then he gathers all the people together and he says, you know, this man would never have been able to move into that room if you people had been given your tithes and offerings, which are supposed to be stored in there. You stopped giving. You opened up a vacuum. And when you opened up the vacuum, the devil moved in. Isn't that an interesting principle? You know, there's just so much space in our hearts. You create a vacuum where God belongs and it won't be long before Satan will be in there taking up his residence in your life. It's called the principle of positive replacement in reverse. <laughs> Some of you who have walked with God and used to honor the Lord with your life and with your substance and with all that you did and you've kind of backed off and you stopped serving the Lord and all of a sudden there was a vacuum created in your life and now you wonder why it is that the enemy has such a hold on you in areas of sin and disobedience. They had forgotten their vows of support. And what had happened is they left the Levites with no one to support them. You see, in the economy of Israel, the Levitical priesthood was supported by the tithes and offerings of the people. And if you read the text carefully, you'll discover that what had happened is the Levites, because nobody was giving, had to move out to suburbia. They actually left Jerusalem. They moved out into the suburbs, and they took jobs, and they began to harvest their own grain and care for themselves. And the question then is, if they're doing that, who's taking care of the house of God? Well, obviously, nobody's taking care of the house of God because we got Tobiah living in the temple. They had forgotten their vows of support. So Nehemiah reprimanded the officials for neglecting their responsibility to make sure that the children of Israel obeyed the Lord in these matters. And what made these events even more distressing for Nehemiah and difficult to believe is that these leaders in Israel had previously signed a document promising before the Lord and the people that they would never again let this happen in Israel. Go back to chapter 10 and read verses 32 and following. Remember when we studied the 10th chapter and we talked about making a covenant or a commitment. And these people all have their names in this covenant. You can find them at the front of chapter 10. They all signed a document saying, this is what we're going to do. And it says in verse 32, we made ordinances for ourselves. They did this themselves. That we would exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, etc., etc. We cast lots among the priests and Levites and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house. They had a whole system set up, and they said, we will never again let the Levites be without what they need. And they signed a paper and said, from now on, we're going to do right. Twelve years later, the house of God's empty. The Levites are living out in suburbia. 
tilling their own ground, trying to work and take care of the things of God, the house of the Lord's in disrepair because they had forgotten their covenant. They had made a vow which they had not kept. It's not hard for us to understand that. So Nehemiah, in his inimitable style, proceeds to correct the situation. In his own words, recorded in verse 11 and 12, we read, Then I gathered them, the Levites, together, and I restored them to their posts. And all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. Nehemiah's back. The cat's been away. The mice have been playing. The cat's back. And I want to tell you something. He's getting things in order. He's got Tobiah out. He's got the tithes and the offerings back in. He's moved the Levites from suburbia back into Jerusalem. He's put them all in the right place, and they're back doing what God called them to do. But he isn't done yet. There is a third thing they had forgotten. They had forgotten their vows of the Sabbath. Notice chapter 13, beginning at verse 15. In those days I saw in some people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Now hold your place there and go again with me to chapter 10 and notice what they had promised God they would do concerning the Sabbath. Notice verse 31 of chapter 10. That if the peoples of the land bring wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and that we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exaction of every debt. They had signed their names to the fact they would not let happen what was happening. Now you say, does that mean we shouldn't buy and sell on Sunday? No, Sunday isn't the Sabbath. Sabbath means Saturday. Sabbath is seven. Sunday is the first day of the week. It is interesting that all of the Old Testament law is repeated in the New Testament, all of the Ten Commandments with the exception of the commandment concerning the Sabbath day. Now, that doesn't mean we should just treat Sunday without any regard. I think it is built within the economy of the universe that there's one day out of seven where we ought to kick back a little bit and rest. And one of the reasons we got so many people tripping out instead of kicking back is because they never take any time to rest and relax. There's just a principle built into our culture, to our whole economy, that there needs to be some time away from what we normally do. I'm not here to reinstitute the Sabbath laws on Sunday. I think it'd be all right if we went back to the blue laws. It'd be fine with me. But we ought to be careful that we don't try to take all the Sabbath laws and reinstitute them into Sunday. And some folks have forgotten to, about that, and they've tried to do it. But in the Old Testament, it was not an option. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath belonged to the Lord, and Jews were under the law to observe it, and there were strict regulations concerning the Sabbath which must not be violated. And the interesting thing about this, as I study this passage, is these Jews had just come out of 70 years of captivity, which was the result of having violated the year of Jubilee for 490 years. In other words, in the Old Testament economy, God had not only set up one out of every seven days is to be given back to the Lord, but one out of every seven years was to be given back to the Lord. And for 490 years, the Jews violated the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. And so God said, all right, if you won't give it to me as I ask for it, I'm going to take it from you. And God took them to Babylon and took 70 years out of their lives, which is 490 years worth of Sabbaths. And for 70 years, they've been gone. Now they're just back. They haven't been back long enough, hardly even pass from one generation to the next. And the first thing they do is to start violating the very thing that caused them to be in captivity in the first place. Boy, it's hard for me to understand that, except it's just like us. 
It's just like us. We're hard-headed, aren't we? We never do finally learn anything. We know in our own hearts that God blesses us when we give, that God blesses us when we honor Him. And yet the first time we have any stress in our family or in our financial dealings, the first thing we do is we put God over here on the shelf for a while while we go on with business and we wonder why God doesn't bless us. So I'm going to tell you something. Nehemiah, I can use this word if it's all right, he was ticked. I mean, he is really upset. I mean, he comes back and finds this reprobate living in the temple. He gets that taken care of. Next thing he knows, these people are doing other crazy things. He has to deal with that. Now he discovers they have violated the Sabbath after they've all signed a covenant that they're not going to do it. Now, I want you to see what he does. He says, they're actually men from another culture who have come and set up their wares in Jerusalem. The men of Tyre, according to verse 16, had moved into Jerusalem, set up their own business in the city, and the leaders of Jerusalem were allowing the men of Tyre to have their own little swap meet right downtown Jerusalem. So Nehemiah faces this one. I'm going to tell you something. He gets after it. I want you to notice what happened. Verse 17, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? In other words, don't you remember how we got in the mess we've been in? We did this before, and God judged us for it. Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now watch carefully. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut. And I charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. They said, well, we can't get in. We'll set up our shop outdoors. Now watch this. So I warned them and I said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And he's not talking about ordination. <laughs> From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Don't you love this guy? You know, you say, is it right for him to have this holy zeal? It is absolutely right because he is zealous for the holiness of God. It's right for him to throw Tobiah out because he's God's enemy. He absolutely ought to do that. It's right for him to bring the priests back in and get them back to work and tell the people to start supporting them because that's what God's Word says. And it's right for him to throw all these merchants out of the city and to lock the gates so nobody can get in and out on Saturday. I mean, you talk about locked in, locked in to do the Word of God. It's like coming to church on Sunday morning. Some of you don't come back on Sunday night. I just lock the doors. You can't go home all day. We'll serve lunch and we'll have church on Sunday night and we'll flat get you here one way or the other. That's what Nehemiah did. He spoke to the leaders, he shut the gates, and he scared the merchants to death. And they said after they talked to Nehemiah and saw his wrath, he said, you come out here one more time and I'm coming out, I'm going to punch your lights out. That's what I'm going to do. And they're gone. Now, I'm not suggesting we take Nehemiah's um, action here. We're not prophets. We're leaders. Boy, does he have a strong heart for God. And... You can imagine having gone through what he did to rebuild the walls and reconstitute the people. He's on the look for anything that will marginalize his victories, and so should we be. We'll have the second part of uh, this section, Nehemiah 13, 1 to 22, tomorrow, and then we'll wrap up this series on Monday with a message entitled, Being Separate Unto the Lord. I'm so glad that you have joined us for this series on renewal, and I hope that God is using it 
in some way in your life. We'd like to know if that's true. If you've gotten a new start and you're beginning to see God bless your life because of your obedience, that's a wonderful story to tell. And don't forget now, uh, we're running out of time to tell you about the prayer code. It is a beautiful devotional book. It's 40 prayers, 210 pages of teaching. Every entry contains a prayer, a life guiding principles, code word to help you apply the principles, and a code verse to memorize. This um, is a beautiful book with a presentation page and a ribbon bookmark. It will transform your prayer life. It will help you develop a deeper relationship with God. You can use it for your own use or for group study, but it's yours for the asking when you send a gift to Turning Point during January. We look forward to hearing from you, and we're excited about sending you this book. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code. 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several durable and stylish cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. If you and I were next-door neighbors chatting in the driveway, one of us would mention some unexpected development in our life. Perhaps an extended family member diagnosed with a serious disease. Perhaps a child with a special need or perhaps an automobile accident or an appliance gone bad or the crabgrass taking over the yard. We face issues weekly, if not daily, 
that are new for us. Situations that prompt us to ask, what should I do now? Well, the Bible has an answer. Ask God for wisdom. James 1.5 says if we lack wisdom, we should ask God for it and then believe that he will provide. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's wisdom on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.